Nothing gives me as much anxiety, pleasure, or frustration as cooking does. I just don't understand it. I think I inherently don't understand the basic principles of which there are too many to memorize, especially if you've been exposed to all manner of cooking, rural, country, small town, big metropolis, in an unrelenting buffet style of eating around the world. Not that I've been to all the rich food cultures, India sorely missed amongst them, but Italy and China, those two are two big ones. And now I'm spoiled. Even after one full year of researching, prepping, trial and error, giving up, more research, prepping, planning, trial and error, my brain power was still too paltry to rub together a coherent chicken thigh marinade recipe. Even after buying two beautiful enameled cast iron cookware pieces and having fun with the steaming and braising, I still was unable to make anything more complicated, to put more than three ingredients together. You really can't compact years of experience into a few experiments, as much as hubris would want, have one believe. Pain and desperation, shame and frustration. Cooking almost always ended up at this wall, a dim corner of despair. They say comparison is the thief of joy, but who are these people who have never experienced actual high-quality anything, like 40-day dry-aged steak with rosemary butter or crisp roast rabbit at Ilatini? or five-hour stewed chicken soup, or two-hour caramelized, two-soy-sauce, rock-sugared, glazed pork ribs. What should I do? Sign up for classes at Sur la Table? Try to join a cooking academy school somewhere? They always teach in the French continental style, which I knew would never fly with my taste buds, which had a strange and specific mix of Tuscan Sichuanese wasp. Think scalloped potatoes with Sichuan peppercorn instead of butter and cream. But then, it's not scalloped potatoes, and therein lay all my problems. Knowing all the dishes and being able to make exactly none of them in their correct methodology, their exact prep and execution. Everything being a mishmash of improvised movements, no regularity, no step-by-step process, just everything all at once, no thinking. Put these ingredients together, why not? Experiment, and if it doesn't work, then you've just wasted a chicken. No, two chickens. No, three chickens' lives. But what does it matter? They were already dead. And besides, you're not responsible for patriarchal late-stage capitalism, factory farming. Okay, sure. But if I were to decrease my consumption levels, it would impact the rest of the world fourfold. Somewhere I'd read that Americans' carbon output is four times that of people outside of America, 
And if that were true, Jesus, I've not only wasted three chickens, but actually twelve, if we're keeping count. I'd bought a pack of four thighs at Whole Foods yesterday, where a kindly old white lady asked me if I knew where the udon would be while I was looking at buziate in the Italian pasta aisle. The Asian section, probably, I cheerfully replied. Not sure if this interaction counted as a microaggression or not. Probably not. It would make more sense that I might know where Asian noodles would be, but why would they be in the same section as Italian pasta? Actually, this entire manner of dividing aisles up by nationality feels really segregated, and I wondered if it was Whole Foods' fault for making such clear delineations between normal and international. Whatever. So, I bought a bunch of proteins, feeling like a robber baron fat cat, as I stuffed frozen cod, frozen mussels, oh no, fresh mussels, chicken and pork, feta, artichoke spread in my basket. I thought it would be fun to experiment with different marinades for each of the thighs, as I know myself to be easily bored, and I'd certainly be so if I were to eat four thighs with the same recipe. For the first, I put citronese, star anise, five spice powder, garlic, Shaoxing wine, and soy sauce. Another, I put a lemongrass turmeric paste and salt. Another, mostly just chili pepper flakes and spice rub. The last, I put an Asian-inspired mishmash of horseradish, ponzu, and vinegar. That was the one I began experimenting with today, and boy, was it a disaster. A disaster to end all disasters. Even, even having started it out in my beautiful stub pot. The horseradish was the most overpowering flavor, and I recommend never using it in the quantity that I had done, and never as a marinade. Just imagine a tangy, bitter chicken, like a chicken who'd gone through a series of terrible divorces and had to keep going to family court to get the child support payments she needed. A hard-knock life chicken. The Zidranese one I pan-fried first in the wok, then put it in the oven, like all the YouTube tutorials were pressuring me to do. American recipes and their two-part methods. Annoying. It seemed like meat could never be finished on the stove. It always had to be half stove, half oven. I threw the failed horseradish chicken into my rice cooker and tried to turn it into a stew. One of those medieval peasant stews, the only frame of reference that made sense for such a disastrous attempt. The third thigh, with the lemongrass turmeric rub, I cooked in the same manner as the Sichuanese thigh, and stuck it on the same pan in the oven because, why not? Life is short. The flavors wouldn't meld together as long as they were on the opposite sides of the pan, like middle grade school
for girls and boys at their first dance. Waves of disappointment from a morning's self-feeding attempts forced me into the shower where I tried to wash them off. What is it that they say about death at the end of one's life? All of your memories flash by instantaneously, as if a newsreel were projected on a screen. At 33, why does it feel like the ending of a fantastical, escapist, painful and beautiful tome? Is my life over? I keep wondering. Have I finally exhausted the fumes of my more graceful, supple, historical life chapters? Have I squeezed out every last concentrated drop of Italianate Chinese-ness? Am I starting from zero in my new, steely-eyed, take-no-prisoners role as an Asian-American woman? I suppose in the realm of aesthetics, I'd gone to the furthest logical finish line possible. That is, having crossed those T's and dotted those I's, becoming Googleable, having achieved the baseline of Western aesthetic ideals under my belt, what was next? Becoming a local AAPI minority leader is what seemed to be expected of all of us at the moment. I didn't even have the luxury of a full-time job to crawl under. No veil of middle-class respectability that could shield me from political commitments. Following the murder of an Asian woman being pushed into an oncoming train at 42nd Grand Central Station, I'd signed up for a midtown vigil to be held next week and invited an Asian American friend over for lunch or dinner. Two, in fact, one was a Thai artist I'd always be been perplexed by, and another was a Chinese-American gallery director whom I'd only interacted with once five years ago, when she'd barely just started working in the arts. Nothing this week has given me more of a sense of agency than cleaning out some items from my closet to be sold on a luxury resale website and repurposing a hanging underwear shelf to be used as shoe storage. I'd also been rearranging my boots in the closets to be cleaner and less rack-pat-esque. Looking at all my belongings, I wondered if it was normal to have around 200 pairs of sandals, loafers, boots, and heels. I mean, there are so many different variations on single styles and one would need more than one style for each season, no? Hard to believe it'd been nearly five years since I lived in Firenze. Five years since M sent me all my things, minus the important things like my books, art, and such, from Firenze to New York. I guess it had been a way of re-coalescing my identity by collecting all these shoes, clothes, and artworks. No, 
We aren't defined by what we own, but at the same time, I feel as though we are no more than what we own at any given moment, psychically and materially. Such a possessive way of seeing the world. That must be my Jupiter in Taurus. Back to aesthetic goals. What had been the point of embarking on such a roundabout way of gaining and refining taste, being known for one's taste? Something to do with getting revenge for being ignored or not being taken seriously. Honestly, it was so long ago that it was hard to trace the seeds of discontent from which a full-fledged escapist-rooted art practice blossomed. Anger and pain at not getting what I'd wanted as a teenager. Not having won the popularity contest in middle school. Something like that. Being an initial social outcast upon arrival in kindergarten and not speaking English. Could art rectify all those early injustices? Wouldn't it have been easier to just let things like that slide? To leave those things in the road? But maybe that's what one's karma or dharma was, and the length of the journey was both unavoidable and inescapable, just like one's genetic fate or cholesterol or socioeconomic it boggled my mind to trace my food troubles back to early childhood conditioning and food precarity issues related to my parents' childhoods and their parents' childhoods. It took decades to unenmesh myself from their issues. After all, I had nothing to do with the Chinese revolutionary peasant countryside life. I never even lived in the countryside. I was never starved, not by circumstances at least, more from neglect and willful starvation, so food precarity didn't really have to be something I needed to live with for the rest of my days. It was just impossible to remove myself from the psychic space of their daily tormented recounting and recollections especially as a teenager trying to grow into some semblance of an individual character. And having my mother hovering around, eagle-eyeing every morsel of food everyone was eating, that certainly contributed more to my eating disorders than respectful poverty reenactment out of filial piety. There were so many contradictions around eating that I still get anxiety eating around people, letting someone have the first pick of food, giving someone else food, not eating too much, not eating what they thought was enough for you, no matter your satiety or physical size. All of it tied into some incomprehensible system of patriarchal hierarchical respect. My childhood had its torturous periods, but it also had an equal measure bright, happy spots. More bright spots than gloom. With the discovery of the internet, I was exposed to free stuff, 
promotional email marketing point systems, free sample request forms, things of that kind. Free junk. There was a Pizza Hut Book It program at school that I also excelled at. I read tons and tons of books to fill my list so that I could get a free personal pan pizza. Quite literally the most exciting thing my eight-year-old self could imagine. The program also gave out a bunch of these pins where you could get stickers from completed lists of read books to complete the pins. Oh, such are the small joys of a child. I also had a small vegetable garden, maybe a four by four foot patch in the free community garden at the University of Utah student housing. My large squash were my pride and joy, cultivated over months of careful watering and daily monitoring. There must still be a photo of me holding up my prized large squash, about the size of my torso. Did we eat it? We must have. There were plenty of radio and magazine contests I could enter, and sometimes I won. One year, I won a family pack of ski resort passes, but requested that they be changed for something else, as we weren't the kind of family to ski. Too dangerous, my parents had always said. You could hurt your arm and hands, and where would that leave your piano career? I agreed, because piano was much more important than anything else in my life, even eclipsing school. Every week, little promotional treats would arrive in the mail for me, the arrival of which I anticipated like a pet receiving a chew toy for learning how to roll over or shake its paws. Protein bars, powdered milkshakes, slim fast, soft drink coupons, squeezable stress toys. All these became my carefully collected treasures. It's funny what autonomy looks and feels like to small children in the absence of access to funds or any knowledge of the grown-up world. An accumulation of random free things and a small patch of earth from which magical vegetables sprouted from tiny seedlings. That was all I needed for my happiness. I respect life. I respect your life, and I also respect mine. The world is large enough that we don't have to run roughshod over each other. I never feel lonely when I can look up in the sky and see clouds, those giant billowing plumes, nature's smoke, wafting about in Rorschach play. What we had was a dalliance, as brief as a passing cloud formation, ships in the daytime. On my morning walk down the path that leads nowhere, well, to death, were one to continue heading toward the highway of speeding cars, I witnessed a thousand snails of varying sizes, all trying to cross the road, their mucus leaving trails on the still wet road. 
Watch out for the French, I chuckled to myself, making a passe dad joke to nobody in particular. Do snail farms exist from which the French harvest their slugs, or do they pick any which one from roads, undersides of leaves, moist, damp roughage? Not resisting my childish desire, I pick some of them and fling them gently at a small post-storm pool that's forming at the base of the hill. Some green shrubbery are beginning to pop up. I make a mental note to get the right single garment hanger to set up in the middle of the hill so that I can, once and for all, photograph my new garments. Looking out my window, I see that the sun is coming out in full force, and think about the snails gently and slowly attempting to cross. Soon, the moisture on the road will dry up, and many of them will stop trying, shriveling up in the heat of a Californian morning. And yet they try. What a bittersweet thing life is.